Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This is our fifth and final example of bias in translation. After this episode, we'll have one more to conclude our class on how we got the Bible. But for today, our focus is on the Spirit. Should the Spirit have an uppercase S or a lowercase s? Should pronouns referring back to Spirit be masculine, like he, or neuter, like it? Is the Spirit a who or a which? In this episode, we'll get into the grammar of the Holy Spirit in an attempt to show how translation bias steers unsuspecting readers in the direction of the traditional teaching about the personality of the Holy Spirit. Here now is episode 352, part 23 of our Bible class, Spirit Who or Spirit Which? Translating the Holy Spirit. Now the word spirit is ruach or pnevma, in Hebrew and Greek. The word ruach is feminine. The word pnevma is neuter. These are grammatical gender. This word is going to be translated as air, breath, wind, or spirit. However, when it comes to God's spirit, the spirit of God or the Holy Spirit, suddenly translators start having bias and theological views that motivate them to translate a little bit different. And these begin bubbling to the surface. So I want to show you a couple examples of this. The first one here is from Numbers chapter 11, verse 17. The Hebrew letters, of course, are all capitalized. There are no lowercase Hebrew letters. So when it comes to looking at the translations, we know that the translators are the ones that decide whether or not to capitalize any particular letter. So like, for example, the S on spirit. So let me show you the word spirit in Hebrew here, haruach. And then in these other translations, the literal translation would be, I will withdraw from the spirit which is on you and I will put it on them. This is God talking to Moses about how he's going to take the spirit on Moses and put it on the 70 others. Then we read in a number of these other versions how spirit ends up getting capitalized. So the ESV, the NASB, and a whole number of other translations as well capitalize the S on spirit, whereas the NET, the NRSV, and the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society versions, did not capitalize the S on spirit. Now, why does this even matter? You might be asking yourself, all right, Sean, this is... This is a distinction without a difference. Uh, No, I I believe it does matter. When you capitalize the S on spirit, you're indicating a proper noun, as if we're talking about a person, for example. A lowercase s, in the context of this particular word, indicates a thing or a substance. The NASB here goes still further by adding in the word whom to nudge the reader towards seeing the spirit as a person rather than a thing. We see the word who here in the NASB, whereas all these other ones translated as that. You can use that, which is a relative pronoun, to refer to individuals or things. 
it's a perfectly ambiguous term. I am the person that bought that, or that is the thing that I bought. It works either way. Whereas with persons, generally, it's going to be who, if you want to be specific, I am the one who did this, not I am the one which did this. Which is going to be for things and who is for persons. So I realize this maybe is a level of grammar that you might not be interested in, but it really does matter when it comes to this particular subject. Did God take a substance called spirit, with the lowercase s, and take it from Moses and distribute it to 70 others, or did he take an individual named spirit, uppercase s, and expand his reach, the reach of this individual called spirit, to include the 70 others? That is a major difference. And the context here does not give us any clue about a person. We are best to stick with spirit as God's influence, not another individual, and leave it at that. Which is interesting because even some of these evangelical translations like the NET, they, they leave the spirit lowercase and they don't try to insert a later Christian theology into this verse in Numbers chapter 11. Here we find some examples from John 7.39 and 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we have an intensified theological bias. So, in each case here, we can see that spirit gets capitalized for John 7.39. I'm looking at the NIV, the CSB, the NLT, and the NRSV. A good cross-section of different translations from different perspectives and uh, certainly different philosophies of translation. And yet, they all capitalize the S on spirit. But... There's something else going on here, too, that I want you to be aware of. And that is the word that comes after spirit in each of these cases. Now, when we look at the actual Greek here, we have right here the word which. It's actually a neuter relative pronoun, if you want to be technical. The word is pronounced o or ha, depending on how you pronounce your Greek. And uh, it's, it's not ambiguous. It's clear that it's a neuter, not a masculine or a feminine here. And it's neuter because the word pnevmatos uh, here, to pnevmatos, is itself, pneva is a neuter word. So you're going to get a neuter pronoun to match it. It makes perfect sense, right? But this is the neuter pronoun that, that translates which, okay? However, the CSB rewords the sentence. You have the NIV and the NLT, and I would say also most other translations as well, most other translations, you're going to see who or whom. And then the NRSV left it as which, which is very honest. So that's interesting. Uh, then we look at 1 Corinthians 2.12 as our second example. And uh, once again, we have the word spirit. And this is really interesting because we have the spirit of the world, and then we have the spirit which is from God. That's what the Greek says here. And you can, even if you don't read Greek, you can tell that there's no capital on the word spirit here. It, these two phrases look very similar, and the literal translation, you would just have it lowercase, the spirit of the world, and the spirit which is from God. That's an absolutely literal, no additions or alterations being made translation. And then the NIV, interestingly, will translate from 1 Corinthians 2.12, the S on spirit, lowercase when it's the spirit of the world, and then uppercase when it's the spirit who is from God. So that's interesting. The CSB, same thing. We have a lowercase s for world and uppercase. It's exactly the same word in the Greek, though. So this is, what, this is what I'm calling attention to as far as bias. The NLT, we have received God's spirit, 
not the world spirit. And then uh, the NRSV, once again, the spirit of the world, but the spirit, that is from God. So the, the NRSV did make a difference in capitalization, but then they used the word that instead of the word who to indicate that it, it could be a person or it might not be a person depending on your theological leanings and what you're coming to the text believing to start with. This whole tendency to think of the Spirit as having a capital S and being and using personal pronouns goes back to the year 381. And that was the Council of Constantinople, the first council at Constantinople, when some Christians decided that God's Spirit was, without question, a person of God. And this is all within the idea of the Trinity, which was developed during that fourth century and really hammered out in the creeds, the first one of Nicaea, which really didn't include anything about the Spirit at all. It just said, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And then the Creed of 381 at Constantinople, which included a extensive modification that brought out an understanding of the Holy Spirit. This is what Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the framers of the famous Creed of Constantinople, wrote. But of the wise men amongst ourselves, some have conceived of him, the Spirit, as an activity. Is an activity a person? Is an energy a person? Is a force a person? No, no. Then some as a creature. Is a creature a person? Yeah, it can be. Some as God. So these are the different options. And some have been uncertain which to call him out of reverence for Scripture, they say, as though it did not make the matter clear either way. All right, so in Gregory of Nazianzus' time, in the late 300s AD, there were some Christians who looked at the Spirit as an activity, as an energy, as a force. There were some other Christians who looked at the Spirit as a created being on the order of like an angel. And then you had others like him who were able to persuade the, uh, the Roman Emperor and officially put into force this understanding, believed that the Holy Spirit is a person of God, that the Holy Spirit just is God in some sense. And then he says, well, then there's a bunch of other people that don't really know what the Holy Spirit is or who the Holy Spirit is, and these people are just not going to take a position on it. Then he continues and says, and therefore they neither worship him nor treat him with dishonor, but take up a neutral position. So, look, my, my point here is not to argue a theological position. That's really not the point of this class. The point of this class is to look at translation, to look at the sources of Scripture. And right now we're in the question of that period of bias, that subject of bias where we're trying to figure out where do we find bias in our translations. And this is one of those areas because it's a long-standing Christian understanding since the year 381. And, and you can easily argue that it went back before this as well. I realize that, but I'm saying at least since the year 381 that this view that the Spirit is a capital S person of God came into view. That since then, Christians, many Christians, have been reading the Bible this way. And so they're accustomed to seeing that capital S there and to thinking of it in these categories. However, once that was decided, people just stopped thinking about it. And this is where bias flourishes. Subjects that you're not thinking about it. Subjects that you're not battling over. If you're battling over a subject, you're sensitive to it. But if you're not even thinking about it, you're like, oh, they settled that in the fourth century. We don't need to think about that. Well, that's exactly where bias is going to flourish. This really does shine through in our translations. But let's shift gears and discuss the gender of the spirit, which is another very related topic that I, I mentioned uh, a little earlier. In the New Testament, the word for spirit is pnevma. It's, it's a word that is neuter, 
grammatically. Neuter words are it, not he or she. Now, Jason David Badoon writes the following, explaining this very nicely. Now, it turns out that both masculine and feminine Greek nouns can be used for impersonal things as well as persons. But neuter nouns are used only for impersonal things, such as objects, animals, forces, abstract principles, and so on. The same holds true for masculine, feminine, and neuter pronouns. Greek tends to use personal pronouns more than English does. Some things that would be handled with which in English because they are not persons are referred to with the equivalent of who slash whom in Greek because the nouns that name them are either masculine or feminine. But even though the personal category is larger in Greek than in English, the Holy Spirit is referred to by a neuter noun in Greek. Consequently, it is never spoken of with personal pronouns in Greek. It is a which, not a who. It is an it, not a he. This is a case, then, where the importance of the principle of following ordinary, generally recognized meaning of the Greek when translating becomes clear. To take a word that everywhere else would be translated which or that and arbitrarily change it to who or whom when it happens to be used of the Holy Spirit is a kind of special pleading. In other words, it is a biased way to translate. And because this arbitrary change cannot be justified linguistically, it is also inaccurate. Now, in Greek, you have more gendered nouns than we have in English, right? So if you refer to an object in English, it's always going to be it, whereas in Greek, it might be she or he. However, in Greek, when you have a neuter noun, is generally a thing. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to this rule that I think are worth pointing out that Badoon doesn't cover in his, his book. For example, the word technon is a Greek word that means child. This is a neuter word. Are we going to argue that a child is a thing and not a person? No, that's, that's crazy. So a child is a person, but it is a neuter word. So you're going to see words like child, which grammatically that would be correct. But uh, it's actually a little bit more interesting than that because Greek has a way of cheating. The grammatical system was something called constructio ad sensum, and Daniel Wallace explains that here. This is from his book, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. A small group of demonstrative pronouns involve a natural agreement with their antecedents that overrides strict grammatical concord. As such, they are illustrations of constructions according to sense, constructio ad sensum. This natural agreement may involve gender or, much more rarely, number. Now, this is not just for demonstrative pronouns like this and that, but it also works for regular pronouns and relative pronouns, all these different kinds of pronouns that probably you're not really interested in studying up on. But in this subject, of translating the Holy Spirit, it, it really does make a big difference. So let's look at some examples here. In 2 John 1, 1, the uh, Net Bible translates it as, From the elder to an elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Now, in this case, the word children here is technis, and it's the word that is neuter. However, instead of using the word 
which in this verse, 2 John 1, 1, John broke the rules of grammar. You're supposed to say which because it's, it's a neuter word, so you use a neuter relative pronoun to refer back to it. And instead, what did he do? He used the word whom. This is grammatically incorrect, but it's a kind of way that in Greek you can cheat and people don't think you're, you're, you're being a hillbilly here because you're, you're using the wrong... No, they, they understand what you're doing. You, there's a natural sense of gender and then there's a grammatical sense of gender. And so they broke the rules because like everybody knows a child is a who and not a which. And so this is a perfect example of that in 2 John 1.1. 1, 1. Secondly, in Colossians 2.19, uh, once again, the Net Bible reads, He has not held fast to the head from whom the whole body, and it goes on from there. Now, the word the head here is teen kephalin, and it's, uh, the, the word kephali is the word for head in Greek. It's a feminine word. Now, of course, in Colossians 2.19, Paul is talking about Jesus, that Jesus is the head of the church. And so he's using this feminine word to describe Jesus, but then he slips into masculine pronouns when he refers back to it. So this word, from whom, is actually a masculine word. He has not held fast to the head, feminine, from whom, masculine, the whole body fits together and grows and so on, right? So this is a second example where, once again, they're breaking the rules of grammar in the pronouns because everybody knows the pronouns actually referring to a different actual uh, gender than the specific noun it immediately refers to or its antecedent. One last example, Matthew 25, 32, which reads, All the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate people one from another. Ta'ethne here is the plural of the word for nation, and it is indicated very clearly by the definite article here, a neuter plural. However, when referring back to it in the same verse, we get the word avtus, which is a masculine pronoun. It's the word them. And so in the English translation, it says all the nations, the word nations here is neuter, will be assembled before him and he will separate. They actually translated the word them, people, because it's clear that it's referring to the people in the nations, not like the land or resources or something else, right? This is breaking the rules so that you can bring out the natural sense over against the grammatically correct sense. So from these examples, it's clear that you can, in the New Testament, write who instead of which if you believe the object you're speaking about, that is a neuter word, is really a he or a she. You can do that, and they do that several times, but they didn't. They didn't. Probably because they didn't think of the spirit as a who. Now, to be honest, this whole subject of spirit, theology, pneumatology as it's called, is much more complicated than I can get into with you in this brief little episode on translating the Holy Spirit. I realize there's the upper room discourse of John 14, 15, and 16, where the Spirit is equated to the paraclete, which is a word translated as helper or advocate. Uh, there's a lot more room in that passage to use masculine pronouns. I don't dispute that at all. I, it's just I'm not talking about that passage. I'm talking about the word spirit in general in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and this tendency to capitalize the S and then to use personal categories for pronouns instead of impersonal categories, to use who instead of which. There are a number of different interpretations and theologies out there about the spirit, the Holy Spirit, but that's not really 
what I want to get into here. My point here is simply that, look, if you're going to translate the Bible, translate the Bible as it stands, on its own terms. And if you want to put a footnote that says, well, we believe ever since the year 381 that the Spirit is a capital S Spirit, it's a who and not a what, because of these verses here, God bless you. It's a study Bible. You do what you want to do. But don't change the Bible, and then now people who don't accept that theology are going to come along and read it, and, and now it's baked into the Bible. I mean, this is the Bible here. We can't, we can't inject it with our own bias and our own theology. Uh, and if you want to get much more in-depth on the whole subject of Holy Spirit and grammar, I highly recommend Daniel Wallace's excellent paper called Greek Grammar and the Personality of the Holy Spirit. You can get it online as a PDF for free. And at the end of that, he concludes, now this is Daniel Wallace, the senior New Testament editor of the NET Bible, the NET, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, as conservative as they come, uh, theologically speaking. And this is what he says at the conclusion of his very lengthy uh, and, and very helpful paper on whether or not the grammar of the Holy Spirit can be used as an argument for its personality. This is what he says. There is no text in the New Testament that clearly or even probably affirms the personality of the Holy Spirit through the root of Greek grammar. And this is the guy that wrote the book on Greek grammar. The basis for this doctrine must be on other grounds. I am not denying the doctrine of the Trinity, of course, but I am arguing that we need to ground our beliefs on a more solid foundation. So if there's no grammatical reason to believe in the personality of the Holy Spirit, then translators shouldn't bake it into their versions. That's my simple point here today. Leave it ambiguous and let people figure it out. Once again, Jason David Badoon writes, as always, it is not the theology of the translators to which I object, but the habit of imposing that theology on the biblical text. Their theological interpretation of the character of the Holy Spirit may be right, but it can only be right if it is based on the unbiased reading of the Bible, which is supposedly the authoritative source. With regard to the use of the relative pronoun when it refers to the Holy Spirit, I would suggest that... Since this English relative pronoun is used for both persons and things, its use in translations of the New Testament would not foreclose the issue of the character of the Holy Spirit, but would allow both personal and impersonal interpretations of it. The grammatical gender of the phrase suggests an impersonal interpretation. But the question cannot be settled by that fact alone. I think the evidence of the literary context is complex enough that we should replicate the Bible's own ambiguity about the Holy Spirit in English translations. To allow doctrine to determine the biblical text is for the tail to wag the dog. It's just backwards. The Bible is supposed to determine theology. Theology is not supposed to determine the Bible. There's a, there's a correct order for these things. You put your socks on, then you put your shoes on. If you put your shoes on and then you put your socks on, you're going to have problems. So even if we are super confident, we risk disempowering Scripture. Did you hear that? We're, we're disempowering Scripture if we imbue it with our beliefs at the outset. Imagine a doctor who believes the cause of all ailments is cancer. Somebody comes in and they have flu-like symptoms and 
Uh, the doctor just insists that it, it's got to be cancer. It's got to be cancer. The doctor orders all these tests and they all come back negative, but the doctor just knows it's got to be cancer and prescribes chemotherapy. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, if you have the flu, is chemotherapy going to make you better or worse? It's going to make you worse. It's going to intensify your flu-like symptoms and give you all kinds of other symptoms that you probably didn't have before while doing nothing to cure your flu uh, symptoms. This is what happens with a misdiagnosis. All right. So when scripture fails the test, the diagnostic test of personhood, translators merrily capitalize the S on spirit and change. This is, this is what gets me so heated about this. They're changing which to who? That's a change. That's an editorialization. That's them saying, well, I know that Paul wrote which, but we know better today. I'm going to translate it as who. This is just the same thing. It's where you think you know better than what the clear situation is in front of you. It's the epitome of circular reasoning and should have no place in our Bibles. Well, all right. Well, that's enough for this topic. Uh, I have written a couple of detailed papers on translating the Holy Spirit. I'll put links in the notes to this episode for those of you who are interested in going a little deeper and really researching this subject further. Next time, we're going to review and draw some conclusions and I'll offer some recommendations as far as translations go in our continuing quest to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for this episode. I've got a number of books in the show notes for this episode for you to refer to if you're interested in doing further research, as well as a few papers, including links to the Greek grammar and the personality of the Holy Spirit by Daniel Wallace, as well as both of my Holy Spirit and translation bias papers, which are much more extensive than what I was able to get into here as well as a link to a YouTube video by The Bible Project that you may be interested in, especially considering the fact that in their survey of the biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit, they never mentioned any sense of personality or personhood, and there were some pretty harsh comments because of that. So take a look at that. Also, I have two other podcasts on Restitutio that directly deal with the the more complex subject of defining a biblical theology of the Holy Spirit. For example, Theology 14, the Holy Spirit, gives a biblical theology of the Spirit and five biblical reasons why the Spirit is not a person, apart from either the Father or Jesus. And then Theology 15, Challenging the Holy Spirit, gives sound, or at least I hope sound, biblical explanations of misunderstood verses that defenders of the, of the Spirit's personality point to as evidence of their position. So check out that theology class number 14 and 15 if you want to delve into more biblical doctrine on the Holy Spirit. Also, a couple of comments just wanted to read out. Joe Middleton wrote in on episode 350, uh, which was firstborn of or firstborn over our discussion of Colossians 1.15 and says, Hello, Sean. I just wanted to let you know how truly blessed I've felt listening to these Bible classes and actually all of your podcasts. I have shared this information with multiple people about our Bibles, and you would be amazed how much misinformation these people actually believe. Joe, believe me, I am not amazed. I myself... <laughs> <laughs> was amazed at how much of a lack of information I personally had about the Bible and about its manuscripts and about 
translation issues that I was just essentially ignorant of until doing the research for this class. So I'd certainly believe it. Joe continues, I even have a close family member who is a preacher and had no idea about John 7.53 to 8.11 not being in the manuscripts. I feel like this topic is so important, and I'm so glad to see you devoting so much time and effort into this. I can't wait for Saturday's episode. Well, a couple things on that. I, too, have seen a number of different preachers using the adulterous woman incident in John chapter 8, and this is one of these this is one of these issues where it's really hard to bring it up, especially right afterwards. I mean, just imagine the scene, you know, a preacher gets finished. I mean, I, I'm a preacher. I know what it feels like. You get finished. I mean, you did the best you could. You prayed. You, you tried to connect to the people, engage them to accurately handle Scripture. I mean, you're doing your best. Everybody's doing their best. And they get down, and somebody from the audience comes up and says, Oh, you know, John 8 is not actually in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, probably not necessarily the best time to have that discussion right afterwards, but uh, certainly in an email or a face-to-face meeting later on, it does need to get brought up because, look, this is really an integrity issue. If John 7:53 to 8-11, the story of the adulterous woman, is not biblical, as I think I've pretty definitively showed, and I am not at all doing any new research here when it comes to this. I just read you the standard reference sources for manuscripts and textual analysis, and if you haven't listened to that episode, it's number 341, the 12th part of the Bible class called Two Uncorrected Corruptions. So take a listen to that or watch it on YouTube if you haven't yet had a chance to get in on that discussion, but this is really important because it does come down to, as I said, integrity. If this is not in the Bible, we can't preach it like it is Bible. And if it's if it's not part of the canon of Scripture, then the doctrine of inspiration does not cover this, this passage. I mean, it could still be historical. Some Christians do argue for that. I think Dale Wallace takes that position, although I think it's tentative, to be honest. Uh, but you'd have to make a case for the historicity of this incident. You can't just say, oh, well, it's in the Bible, so therefore I believe it. But this is not in the Bible. So you have to establish it on other historical grounds. And and to be frank, I don't see how you could honestly do that for sure. I mean, maybe there's a way. So I, I strongly recommend to preachers, to teachers, to Sunday school instructors that Uh, You just don't use this passage. I mean, most of your translations these days are going to have brackets around it. They're going to honestly tell you that this is not in the earliest manuscripts. That should be indication enough uh, that there's something funny going on here, and you don't want to lean on it because it's not solid ground. As far as devoting so much time to this class that Joe, Joe mentioned, uh, yeah, I have devoted a lot of time to this class, and uh, now that we're coming down the final stretch, we've just got one more episode. I'm, I'm excited, quite frankly, to be done with this class. Uh, it's been an insane amount of research and work, and uh, I'm really happy with how it came out. However, I'm also sad that I wasn't able to cover certain other subjects that I'll mention in our next episode uh, that are areas for future research and uh, for you as well to research. But uh, this class is so important to me because, really, when it comes to Restitutio, this ministry, our goal is to restore authentic Christianity, and my contention, and I know a lot of you believe this too, my contention is that authentic Christianity rests on the Bible. And 
getting a good understanding of what the Bible, an accurate understanding of what the Bible actually is and says, is really the first step in Restoring Authentic Christianity, which is really our aim here, podcast by podcast. So uh, thanks so much for writing in. Also, Jay Kerr wrote in on on the last episode, 351, did Jesus claim to be the I Am, translating John 58, and said, will you be recommending any particular translations before wrapping up this stimulating series? I'll never be proficient in Greek and Hebrew, so any guidance would be appreciated. Well, Jay Kerr, a number of people have requested that I make some recommendations, and that really wasn't my intention with this class. I always feel bad about making recommendations because I know I'm, I know there's no way to do it without getting somebody mad, or really my own limited knowledge. I have not read every Bible translation that's out there, and uh, until you really read it all the way through, you don't really have an accurate grasp enough to recommend or not recommend it. So it is a really tricky kind of thing. Uh, but I am going to do that. I'm going to step out on the ledge and make a few recommendations. So you have to take a look at our next episode in this series, which will be episode 24, to see the recommendations that I give. But I, I And I also will address this other statement that Kerr made about um, how he's never going to be proficient in Greek and Hebrew. First of all, I, th- I think a little persistence when it comes to learning the biblical languages can pay rich dividends. I mean, you have to be somewhat stubborn and faithful, but you can learn these languages. Most most people. I mean, not not everybody. If you have a significant learning disability or if you're working three jobs just to barely make ends meet, I, I understand. God bless you. I, I wouldn't expect it of you. But most of us have a couple of hours, if we're honest. Some of us five, eight hours a day of leisure time, of disposable time, with which we can do as we please, and generally we tend to use that time up on entertainment, on sort of recreational activities and that sort of thing. And uh, so for most of us, learning another language, especially a biblical language, is entirely possible, entirely affordable, and well within the amount of time that we have available on a daily or weekly basis. So uh, I'm going to make an impassioned plea for studying the original languages next time. I don't want to ruin that here. I do hear you, and not everyone is going to learn those languages, so I will, I will make some recommendations. Stay tuned for that next time in our How We Got the Bible class. Thanks, everybody, for listening, for writing in. We'd love to hear your comments on today's episode about the Holy Spirit. If you have any thoughts on that, questions, pushbacks, whatever, please come on over to restitutio.org. Find episode 352, Translating the Holy Spirit, and leave your comment on the site. Also, if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group, which is just called Restitutio. You could join that. There's always uh, lots of ongoing conversation and commenting and questions and people posting different sorts of things on there. And it is a truly international group of Christians that, uh, that interact there. So I encourage you to join that if you haven't already. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at our website, restitutio.org. And we'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.